0: Morning everybody. Uh, My name is Jeremy, the pastor here, and the reason that we are holding all the chillins in here is because, uh, similar to last week, uh, we are doing another little bit of family business. So uh, this week we're going to be receiving a whole bunch of new members that have just recently gone through this process of Explore Midtown interviews with elders, all kinds of other super intimidating things, but they made it and they're here and they survived to tell the tale. So uh, if I could go ahead and have up Courtney and Tipper Austin, Rob and Courtney Fadu, Jonathan Amane Fry, Lizzie and Steve Ingram, Eric Autumn Kajawa, Forbes and Allie Smallwood and all childrens and others who will come up and stand alongside, welcome them. Awesome. If you just kind of make a little half moon roundabout here, fan out on either side, love it. Welcome everybody. Um, So there's a couple of things that we do outwardly that express something that is true inwardly. This is one of those things. Church membership on paper doesn't mean anything really. But what this means spiritually is it is signifying something that is true and real that the New Testament talks about consistently like this. Ephesians 2 verse 19 says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And that is not true just of Midtown Creve Hall. That is true. This is saying that you are a part, as a believer, you are a part of a global family of every tribe, tongue, and nation that bows the knee to King Jesus. What you're doing here today is standing up to say, one, I am a part of that global family. I do believe in these things that we're about to say yes to in vows. But secondly, you're also expressing and experiencing the communion of saints. You're experiencing, Lord willing, real friendship, real community, uh, real welcome from the Father as you experience that one, in, uh, one to another, both in what we do on Sunday and what we do as we continue to live our lives scattered across this city throughout the week. So, uh, just like When we had two kids and we're sitting around my table and there was always this sense of, I think there's at least one more kid who should be here that's not. This is an open table. Uh, There is always an opportunity to say, who is not here that should be here? Uh, And what y'all are doing today is filling that seat at the table. And just like when that third kid of mine came in, that changed our family dynamic. So as you come in, you're changing our family dynamic. Uh, You're bringing gifts, you're bringing talents, you're bringing a story, you're bringing certain things that will invest into this community, and Lord willing, this community will also be investing in you. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to, you've been hopefully made very aware of these five membership vows that you'll be taking. Uh, I will read them one at a time. You can respond by saying yes, and when we're done with those things then you will all kneel and I'll get out the sword and then we'll knight left ear, right ear, and then we'll be done, okay? Great. Maybe everything except that last part. So here we go. Number one, I'm going to turn, turn kind of like this. Is that okay? Okay. Number one, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel? Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes followers of Christ? Do you promise to support the church and its worship and its work to the best of your ability? And do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church, and promise to study its purity and its peace. Okay, you did it. All right, if y'all could y'all like gather around, maybe do a little bit of this. Elders, others, friends, come on. Let's bring it in. Let's bring it in, and let's just lay some hands real quick. You don't have to kneel. Let's just lay some hands and pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much. Uh, Thank you that you are giving outward reality to express things that are true inside of us that maybe we don't totally believe. In fact, I'm almost sure that we don't totally believe, that I don't totally believe, that I could be this loved, that I could be this accepted, that I could have a new family. No matter what my nuclear family looks like, no matter where we're coming from, we can have a new family, a new start, a new origin story that begins before the foundation of the world. And that's what you've done. That's the work that you have done for us, inviting us in to your family when we have done nothing to deserve it. Lord Jesus, thank you. Uh, And thank you for the real expression that each of these families has been to me and to others in our community uh, of the love of Jesus, of the truth of Jesus, of the acceptance of Jesus, of the power of Jesus in all the different ways that you image who you are through these people. Thank you. Uh, And we pray that uh, like we just said that we would do, I pray that we would now live into those realities. That we would live into those realities of more and more encouragement, more and more friendship, uh, more and more investment in one another in this local church expression of your body of Christ across the world. Uh, And would your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In these families' lives, in our community, across the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Welcome guys. (laughs) Love it. Love it. All right, kiddos, you are now released. Head on back to your classes. Kid Town, I hope you got extra volunteers. Oof. Okay. All right, as they continue to filter out, um we're jumping into uh, the middle of a series. If you're new with us, uh, we've been trucking through the Book of Revelation. It has been a doozy uh, over the past—I don't even know—eight weeks, maybe—and uh, we've got, I believe, five weeks left. Uh, but there's a lot to say, and yet again, we have a lot to say today. So uh, we're in Revelation 12. Let's go ahead. Let's go ahead and read it. Uh, I'm not even sure who's supposed to be reading today. Is it you? That'd be great if it was you. Sure. Catherine Singleton. Okay, somewhere under here. Oh, no, there it is. Revelation 12, everybody.
1: All right, here we go. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his heads, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child who one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished by 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven." And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood but the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus And he stood on the sand of the sea. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: I feel the need to pray. So let's do that. Uh, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would communicate your truth, your goodness, and your grace now. Through this passage, uh, through my feeble words and attempts uh, to try to describe something that is so far above me. Who can stand? but we pray that in these moments, Holy Spirit, speak, speak powerfully, speak assuredly to our hearts now in your name. Amen. Uh, So my kids say that I talk to myself a lot. Like they comment on how much I talk to myself, particularly they comment in two different areas of my life. One, they comment and they notice how much I talk to myself when I'm working on a project. So Uh, I'll be like, okay, so I got this two by fours over there and I'm going to cut those down to four foot. And then I grab the two inch screws. I got to get those out of the shed. I got to come back. Uh, Let's see. I think my screw gun's out of battery and it's under there. So I'm going to run in the house. Maybe I'll get a snack while I'm in there. Come back out 15 minutes. Everything will be okay. And they're all just kind of staring there glassy eyed. Like, do you want me to help or what? Uh, Or driving. We're just driving back from a wedding this past weekend and I missed my turn. And it was one of those, oh, well, there it goes, Miss my turn. Okay, so there's a light up there. So then I gotta, I'm going to have to take a loop, a U-turn at the light. And maybe, you know, oh, yeah, can I get over? Hey, can I get over? Oh, thank you. And, you know, merge over. There's a lot of words that come out of my mouth in order to help me process. It's probably because I'm not very smart. But uh, we all talk to ourselves a lot more than we think. Do you pay attention? to the inner monologue that's going on in between your ears? Particularly, do you pay attention to the inner monologue and what it is saying about you? Do you find these words? I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I just did that. I have no social skills. I cannot believe what just came out of my mouth. I have no friends. Why would anyone like me? I will never get it right. I should just give up. And maybe these aren't literal words that you're thinking in your prefrontal cortex right here. Maybe they're just sort of like these sensations or these feelings, these gut-level impressions that you have about yourself. The next two weeks, we are going to be spending time talking about, we're jumping to the next of these seven themes Of Revelation. The way that we're organizing this series is based on themes because uh, Revelation does not run from beginning to end chronologically. There are themes that are circulating throughout the book. So we're picking out seven of those themes, and of course, they all have a P because it wouldn't be church without alliteration. So this next one that we're moving into is the perpetrators against Jesus, meaning who are the enemies of Jesus and the church, and what does the book of Revelation have to say? about those enemies and how we are to, in the words of the previous 11 chapters of Revelation, how are we to overcome? So we're gonna focus on one enemy this week and then two enemies next week. Uh, The one this week we couldn't cram any more into because there's a lot to say about this. We just met in the reading of Revelation 12, this one who is known as the accuser, the deceiver, The red dragon, Satan himself. And the way we're going to arrange this conversation today is around two different things. One, the bad news and the good news about Satan. There's both bad news in this passage and there's good news in this passage about how we are to overcome. The bad news today is that Satan still speaks, and his words are everywhere. He still speaks. But secondly, the good news, the blood of Jesus, according to verse 11, speaks louder still. And that's what, uh, Holy Spirit, would you help us to hear the voice of Jesus this morning? So let's jump in. Bad news. Satan still speaks today. According to this passage and according to the swath of uh, what we find from Genesis to Revelation, who are we talking about? When we see Satan here, we may get all kinds of images in our mind, most of which have come, I mean, it's Halloween time, so, you know, it's probably like some documentary that's been on the History Channel or something that's like a cartoon with Tweety Bird where there's like, you know, the angel Tweety Bird on this shoulder and like the devil Tweety Bird with the pitchfork and his red with the red tail on this shoulder. Whatever may be conjured up in your mind, here's what scripture says. All the way back to Genesis 3, we see the antagonist of the story of this entire thing. The antagonist comes in the form of a snake to question God's goodness. And the way this, again, if you're new to Christianity, new to the Bible, if this is all brand new to you, it is a fair question to go, well, that sounds weird. Animals don't talk last time I checked. So that feels strange to me. Maybe this is just a myth. Maybe it's something that didn't actually happen in history. Um, for the sake of our discussion today, we know that there's at least one other time, I'm probably forgetting another, where, animal, where an animal speaks in Scripture. So there's this prophet Balaam who we actually, I think, about a month ago just talked about. And God speaks to Balaam through this donkey that he's riding on. So it does seem like there is a category in Scripture and in the reality of how God has made the world that at times spiritual beings can speak through animals, and that seems to be what's happening here. Now, what he does is he is, as he has said here, he's a deceiver. So he takes the best deception doesn't look completely off the wall. It looks really close to the truth. And so here, he finds something that is really close to the truth and just expands it a hair. Because what God says is, you can eat of any tree in this garden, you just can't eat of one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. And then Satan comes in and says, did God actually say you can't eat from any of these trees? What kind of guy is he? He's holding out on you. And Eve goes, no, 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 it's, it's only one specific tree and he says if I do it if I eat of this tree I'm gonna die and he goes you won't die you'll just be like God knowing good and evil it'll be no big deal in fact you'll actually be better off because of this taking a truth yes Eve did and then Adam did eat from this tree they did learn the difference between good and evil The problem is they thought they would be better off for this, and they actually ended up being worse. And so it makes sense that all these years later, as we near the end of the story, Satan would show up again in the image in the form of a dragon. Now, one difference between the dragon here and the serpent back in Genesis 3 is that it says the dragon is a sign. So there is not a literal dragon lurking around somewhere. It says, the, a sign, verse 3, a sign appeared in heaven, a great red dragon. So this is meant to say this is imaging a reality. It is not the reality. But what it is imaging is that verse 9 goes on to say that there is a deceiver that is wooing the world away from the truth of who we are made. And whose we actually are in Jesus. And so as a fallen angel, which 2 Peter 2 and Jude 6 describes, that's who Satan is. He's a fallen angel who attempted a heavenly coup, is what it seems. And he hates God and wants his throne and wants him dead. Matthew 12 calls him, 12 calls him the prince of demons. He and his fellow fallen angels want to deceive people away. There's this whole legion of spiritual beings that their whole goal is to, to make you believe that this is all there is. That eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Not only is he a deceiver, according to verse 9, it goes on then to say he is also an accuser that the way he uses his words, his primary weapon of choice is words. We know how powerful words can be. We have been those who have been cut by words, and we have also been those who have cut others with words. Satan, the, the name in both Hebrew and Greek, actually does mean accuser. It is his job description, names indicate who we are. And in that way, it is his very being. Uh, As one who initially wooed the world away from God, now he continues to hold them captive. Because to be a deceiver and to be an accuser are two sides of the same coin. Deceiver woos the world away. Now as an accuser, he goes and stands before God in this heavenly courtroom and says, see, You see what they're doing? You see they walked away from you. You see they don't want to listen to you. You see every guilty, 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 guilty. And because God is a just judge, he agrees. And he brings our sins continually before God in this courtroom of heaven. And he brings them before us. And he brings those things to mind in the quiet moments of our day. Before we lay our head on our pillow at night the first thing we think of when we wake up most mornings is the fear and dread of what might be or the shame and the guilt of what happened yesterday. So the, one of the best pop culture illustrations that I have found, uh, I've been preaching for, I don't know, 15 years, and one of the best things that I have found to describe the work of Satan is this benign little character in The Lion King called Scar. You know Scar? Right? Uh, King Mufasa, the king of Pride Rock and the Pride Lands, it's his brother, and he's jealous of him, and he hates Mufasa. He wants his power. He wants his throne. He wants his ability. Mufasa is this sort of big, glorious lion, and Scar has this, well, Scar. uh, He's a little more gangly. He's a a little more, uh, a little less regal than his brother is and he convinces Mufasa's son Simba to go beyond where he should is this sounding familiar to go beyond the pride lands to go into the elephant graveyard where Mufasa has told him don't go over there the sun doesn't shine over there that's not going to be healthy for you to go over there and he does and then Scar, knowing what he's doing, sends hyenas to ambush, hoping that he will die. And then, at the same time, he alerts Mufasa that his son's in trouble. Mufasa runs, and then what happens? He gets caught in the gulch uh, there in the, in the gorge. He sends this, uh, this wildebeest stampede, and his brother gets caught in this stampede. Mufasa dies as he saves his son. And there's this scene at the very end after Scar has already told Simba and convinced him, you've really blown it. Like, you probably shouldn't show your face around here anymore. That's the voice of guilt and shame. You don't belong here. Do you know what you have done? You shouldn't be able to show your face anymore. Leave. And one of the most poignant scenes is He comes back around at the very end of the movie and there's this final battle between Simba and Scar. And Scar leans in and is reminding him of all the awful things that he's done. It's your fault your dad is dead. It's your fault this whole thing has fallen apart. Your kingdom is in shambles. And he leans in and he says, murderer. That's the voice of the accuser. That's the voice of the deceiver. Taking something that was true convincing us to go past the land of God's loving rule and then accusing us the minute that we do. You see, I told you. And then the guilt and the shame that we feel is then this beautifully orchestrated temptation to go and cope with all of those voices of accusation in our minds. And we fill that with drink and we fill that uh, with food and we fill that with experience and we fill that with anything that will quiet me to believe that I'm okay. So verse 15 is I think one of the most poignant images of what this feels like when you are deceived and when you are accused. Verse 15 says, the serpent pours floodwaters out of his mouth. Pouring floodwaters of deceit and accusation constantly. So the question I think to us this morning is where do you feel flooded? Where do you feel flooded with words of guilt and words of shame? Words of I am not enough and words of I have done too much. And I want to spend just a minute, particularly on shame, because I think guilt we can it is a little more cut and dry. We have done something wrong, and then we feel guilty for that thing that we have done wrong. Shame, on the other hand, feels a little bit more amorphous. It feels a little bit more difficult to kind of get into our hearts and to pluck that thing out because it it feels more like this gut-level experience and less like a very precise action that we can either ask for forgiveness for, confess, and move past. So this would be uh, the distinction between guilt and shame goes something like this. Kurt Thompson's book, The Soul of Shame, which is worth its weight in gold, Uh, Very highly encourage you to go read that. He says, guilt is the feeling of I have done something bad. Shame is the feeling of I am bad. See the difference between those two? So where in your mind are you saying things like, I'm the worst. I don't measure up. I don't deserve good things anyways. Uh, A counselor of mine Uh, a few years ago, helped me to identify the voice of shame like this. So go with me in your head for a minute. Think back to a difficult situation where you felt sort of emotionally shut down, unable to function, maybe sort of floaty, disassociated from your body and your mind. Describe that situation. Remember what was going on in that situation circumstantially. Next, Describe the feelings that you had during that moment, during that experience. Fear, despair, anger, self-loathing, embarrassment. Now, if that emotion could talk, what words would it say to you? So fear may say, you are so incapable. Anger may say, you're out of control. Get it together. Sadness may say, you will never be okay. Those are the places where the accusation and the amen of Satan live. And he doesn't have to try that hard because the, the flow of the world and the flow of our own broken flesh is already moving in those directions of guilt and shame, and he just has to kind of give it a little nudge, and then off we go. I get that. Could you try again? I'll, ex- <laughs> I'll explain it later. <laughs> I hate that thing. Okay, but in all of that, in all of the voices that distract us, including that one, uh, the blood of Jesus speaks louder still. There is good news in this passage that is sung louder than any of the bad news that it may seem like is coming. Because the passage describes a battle being waged. Even, Even verses 1 to 15 here are not chronological. So what's happening in the middle is it's describing something that is happening at a different point in time. A battle being waged between the archangel Michael and Satan. And this is describing how we overcome. This is describing how we become more than conquerors as the book of Revelation describes. Because verse 5 says this is how Satan is conquered. He's conquered by a baby. This, this would be the weirdest Christmas Eve passage, but we could do it. We could actually do a Christmas Eve service, and we'd light the candles, and we'd sing songs, and then we'd hear a sermon about a Christmas dragon. But here's what the, the story of the Christmas dragon says. A woman gave birth to a male child who would rule with a rod of iron. Genesis 49, going all the way back, talks about this child who would come and a scepter would never depart from him. And on and on and on throughout the Old Testament, that is this image that is being struck, a chord that is being struck again and again, ultimately culminating when John the Baptist says, repent and believe the gospel because the kingdom of God is at hand the kingdom, the iron rule of Jesus has come because this woman, Mary, has given birth and has given birth to a son who would rule. And it says that he was then caught up to God, which is the quickest way to describe the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus all in a word. He was caught up. All of those things happened to him, and now he ascended, he is ruling and reigning above all things. And we have spent weeks on weeks describing this lamb who was slain, who is on the throne. So, more information, you can go back and look at any of those. But here's what's happening. In the heavenly courtroom that we described, where God is on the bench and you are on the stand, and Satan rolls out exhibit. A after exhibit B after exhibit C. You see, God, and this is another reason why you should want nothing to do with it. This is another reason why this person is guilty. This is another reason why they should feel shame. He lied to his best friend. She lusted after her coworker. He's got a hot-tempered dad, or he is a hot-tempered dad. All of the reasons that you are guilty before God, and many of those things... Again, the thing about guilt is it's pretty precise. And so we can find things even in this past week where you're like, yeah, I did do that. Yeah, I did not love well in that situation. I did lose my cool there. I did let uh, my, my temper get the best of me. And you do say weird things. And you aren't a great friend. And you should handle your money better. And he heaps all of those words of guilt, and all of those words of shame on his people. And this is what verse 10 and verse 11 say. And I heard a loud voice, louder than the other voice of accusation. That voice is quiet and still and in the back of your brain. This one is loud and in your face. The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him. How? By the blood of the lamb. How does the blood of the Lamb conquer? Well, the blood of the Lamb conquers because Jesus steps in in all of those accusations and removes you from the stand and puts himself on the stand instead. And the judge's gavel goes down guilty. But that guilty verdict, for those of us who are in Christ, does not fall on our heads, but falls on Jesus. Jesus says, I have but one exhibit Exhibit A, the cross. And on that cross, every guilty verdict has fallen on his head. And not only that, on the cross, an exchange happened that we talked about last week. Every bit of the love, the affection, the care, the joy, the rejoicing over that Jesus deserves, you now get in him. This is not only a cross that wipes your slate clean. This is a cross. It's as if the judge now steps steps off of the stand, takes off his robe and ushers you into his house. You now are a part of a new family just like we described up here. Christian. You now have the ability to walk into both cleanness and love both a new record and a new family. And those two things are what is happening in the courtroom of God. And that is the way that the blood of the lamb speaks a louder word, not guilty, dearly loved over you. Do you believe that? Do you live like you believe that? Lord, help. Lord, we believe help our unbelief. Because as it says, the accuser of our brothers who continues to accuse day and night. Again, bad news is he continues to chirp. Good news is we have a song now. Zephaniah 3, verse 17 says this, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with loud singing. He will quiet you by his love, and he will exult over you with gladness. Because those things were true of Jesus in him, so are they true of you. Do I still have more time? I probably don't. I don't. Okay, I got to stop. Okay, then we'll just end with this. Blood of the Lamb, word of our testimony. What does that part mean? It's also what we just talked about up here with membership. The blood of the lamb is what continues to wash us clean in our relationship with Christ. We're continuing to be reminded day by day of our cleansing from our guilt and our cleansing of our shame, allowing us to live fully integrated, allowing us to be fully who God has made us to be, not having to be anybody else, more than or less than, just being able to be us in the way that God has made us to be, in our limitations, in our brokenness, and in our beauty, and be accepted. And the word of our testimony, meaning we hear the words of Jesus to us, and we also hear the words of each other. Those of you in small groups, those of you as you walk out to the car and hear about each other's weeks, we are bearing witness to each other that the reality that is true, that you're clean and dearly loved, we are now living that with each other. And we are treating each other not as our sins deserve, but as those brothers and sisters in the family of God. Lord Jesus, make that true of us. Let's pray. Father, we pray uh, that your power would be made perfect in our weakness. We, We, if this passage says anything, it says that we are even too weak to control our own minds. So, Father, I pray that you would give us a change of mind. Uh, and that more and more you would conform the way that we think about ourselves and the way that we think about other people, uh, not based on what we have done, but based on what you have said about us. Not guilty, dearly loved, in your name.